So over these days together, uh, we've explored in from different angles, we've explored the ways in which our experience um, is revealed and also the ways in which it's constructed, it's shaped. And we've touched on, we've kind of touched the non-separate, non-solid or permanent nature of experience and of life. And we can say in the language of the teachings that we've seen that experience is empty. Empty of um, an inherent existing existence. Yeah. Empty of existing um, separately. Existing from its own side. Empty of existing independently of causes and conditions, independent of our uh, way of looking or our way of relating to it. And so when we speak about emptiness, it's, it's a little bit misleading um, because it sounds like a noun. Well, it is a noun, but it sounds as if it's, it's um, a state or a thing. Yeah. Um, but it's actually a process, a verb, a happening. And it points, the teachings of emptiness, which are the depth of the, of the Buddha's teachings, uh, they point to this constant flow of, uh, of experience coming together, fabricated. And these teachings also point to the part our way of relating plays in this process of fabrication of this coming together. So a few people touched on that in the sharing, um, that experience of the practice this morning of what happens to experience when we bring metta to it, you know, to things we didn't even think that we could bring metta to. Sensation in the body and intention, Vedana. You know, and then what happens when we do that? Yeah, how is experience shaped? So that's a, you know, that's a, a way of touching emptiness, of seeing emptiness through our practice. And so this morning, I uh, this morning, see, I'm tired. This evening, <laughs> I'd like. Maybe maybe I'll talk till the morning. Who knows? I told you this was going to be a unknown time frame. Hopefully not. Um, this evening I'd like to explore this more, to explore um, emptiness in the context of practicing in the world, in the context of awakening in the world. All right, so, yeah. So someone's concerned about the recording, but I have actually pressed play. Uh, pressed record on my device here and I can see that it's also recording on, on Zoom so there is a, um, a backup. So emptiness in the context, but thank you for that. Emptiness in the context of practicing and awakening in the world, um, of practicing and awakening in the world for the world. Yeah. 
and the world in all its joys, in all its sorrows, yeah, in all of its richness, in all of its manifestations. And particularly, I'd like to touch on this evening um, on compassion, yeah, compassion as an embodiment of um, this understanding or this exploration, this ongoing exploration of emptiness. Um, and the understanding of emptiness and compassion as ways of being in the world, as ways of uh, relating to experience in the world. So in, in Pali, in the language of the Buddha, Buddhist texts, there's two different words that are translated into compassion in English, and, and I, I, I think that's quite important. So in English we have... Um, we have compassion um, and in Pali there's two different words and each of them um, highlights or emphasizes a different aspect of, of compassion so the first one I'll just say them in Pali they're not uh, the Pali words aren't important to this talk but I can't resist uh, Anukampa means um, is, is I think most usefully translated as empathy. It literally means the quivering or the trembling of the heart in response to suffering. Mm. So that quality of empathy when we can feel um, for another, with another. And uh, the second word that's translated as compassion, karuna, which is compassion in the form that it... Um, it presents itself amongst the Brahma-viharas, these four qualities that we've been touching on over the days. Karuna includes empathy, but it's an active component of compassion. Yeah? It's got an active aspect to it, that wish, that movement to alleviate suffering, to attend to suffering. Yeah. Say that movement that we know when we um, see somebody else trip or um, hit their head, yeah? or slip, you know, we, like our body moves, yeah, there's that, yeah, wanting, yeah, even if it doesn't actually actively move, but if we listen, we see, there's that movement to attending, to, to doing something, so it's an active mode of compassion, and both these aspects of compassion um, are really important, yeah, for us as human beings, it's important to, to distinguish between them, um, but they're both really helpful, really important for us. Both the capacity to feel empathy, and then with that empathy to stay steady, yeah, to stay steady with uh, pain, with distress, with difficulty, yeah, when that's what's manifesting. And that availability to feel the responsiveness in our hearts and minds and bodies, that move, to do something, um, which in karuna and compassion comes together with a faith in our capacity to act, yeah? a faith in our capacity, trust that there's something we can do, yeah? to act in ways that alleviate, that attend to suffering, that support when they're suffering in, in ourselves or around us. Every time I say suffering, I remember that on this retreat we're meant to be talking about contraction. <laughs> but that's kind of the inner, and then, you know, what we see in the world, yeah, the distress, also the pain, the, the suffering of, of others. 
So one way that I like to look at compassion, at compassion to understand compassion is here's this indication when compassion arises. Um, it's an indication that there's something calling my attention, calling our attention, requiring our attention, just like the pain that we feel in the body is calling our attention. There's something to look at here. There's something to attend to here. And compassion's arising. Yeah. Here's something to pay attention to. Here's something to notice. And when we look with compassion, um, it's, it brings perspective. It's like, um, often it's like zooming out. When we look through this lens of compassion, when we relate with compassion, it's like a zooming out to see uh, a bigger picture, opens up the field so that it's both wider, deeper, and less self-centered, even when it's self-compassion. It's interesting, huh? Less contracted around the sense and identified with the sense of self. Yeah. Self-compassion to um, be, to flow, for it to flow and to have an effect, to be impactful. Yeah cannot come with a contraction and a limitation and an identification. So maybe as I'm saying that, you can already kind of see a little bit of where I'm heading. And compassion isn't separate from wisdom. Isn't separate from wisdom, but actually really interwoven Compassion and wisdom really interwoven with each other, threaded together like two types of thread that make up a cloth. And when I was reflecting on this earlier today, I think it was this morning, um, I had this image come of um, those of you who've been, who've been to India, you've probably come across it. I associate this with India. They have these beautiful cloths that kind of shimmer, pieces of cloth, and they look like they're one color when you look at them from one angle and a different color when you look at them from a different angle. Yeah. And so it's that kind of interwoven, the compassion and the wisdom, like that piece of cloth. They're so closely woven together. And when we turn that cloth, we can see the different colors that make it up, um, but so closely interwoven and threaded. Together with that empathy and that acknowledgement of here's distress, here's stress, here's something to attend to, that movement towards that, there are these threads of understanding, of wisdom, understanding of emptiness, this fabricated, put together, changing way that things are uh, mutually dependent. The understanding of interconnection, yeah, that things are mutually dependent, that um, we are not separate in any way. Experience is not separate from um, our way of relating. And my experience is not separate from yours. Yeah, that we are in relationship and in flow between us. So the understanding of emptiness, the understanding of interconnection and mutuality, the remembering yeah, that our own actions 
Our own actions are part of this network of conditions that creates the world. Yeah. Our actions are part of that network. Yeah. And that whatever we are acting within and towards and against, if our action is one of standing up for something, yeah, we're always acting within the human rather than the personal. Yeah. The human rather than the personal. So even those who cause harm are ha- acting within the human realm. So that understanding and, re- and, and remembering that um, our actions are part of the network and they affect change, they impact, they bring change, and equally our inaction. <laughs> yeah. There's no escape from this. <laughs> Whether we act or we don't, we have an impact. Yeah. Part of this network of conditions that are moving and creating experience, creating the world. And yet at the same time we have an impact and at the same time we have no control over the results. Yeah? We're part of a network, part of a flow but we cannot have yeah, absolute control on the impact of our actions, only on the intention, yeah. only on the intention. And there's a beautiful saying in the Jewish tradition, um, it's one of my favorite Jewish teachings, um, I'll say it in Hebrew because some people here are Hebrew speakers, and it's... Um, So that's the Hebrew. Um, In English, it's not in your hands to complete the work. Yet you are not free to not take part in it. So that sense, this is the sense of um, actually equanimity in Buddha Dharma, that understanding of our responsiveness, that our actions and our inactions have an impact, that our presence in the world has an impact. So here's this possibility, here's this call to action, <laughs> yeah, to be clear about our intentions, yeah. to align with compassion and wisdom, and at the same time, yeah, to act and to know. Yeah that we cannot necessarily control the results, cannot know where our actions, what results they will bring, and when, and when. So this calls to us, encourages us to continue to respond to life, in the most wholesome way available to us. Because that we can do. We can align again and again with the wholesome. Within our understanding at any given moment of where, what are the possibilities and where does this lead. So we can align again and again with with the most wholesome that's available to us in that moment. And we can remember, here we are within this network of life. 
Yeah, part of it. Yeah, part of it in this network, in this web of life. We can be clear about our intentions, about our direction. Yeah. What am I aligned with? What do I aspire to? And we can let go again and again of demanding a particular result. Yeah. Of demanding a particular result. And we can stay tuned to the larger picture beyond this moment, even beyond this life, yeah, even beyond the span of this lifetime. And I think if we reflect on figures who inspire us, we can see <laughs> that we can have an impact beyond this life, yeah, whether those figures are uh, people in our family or our teachers or historical figures, yeah. So we stay tuned to the larger picture beyond this moment and even beyond the span of this lifetime and beyond what we know and beyond what we see. Because whatever we do keeps having an impact in the world. Yeah, it keeps having an impact in the world. And so that call to us, yeah, that calling to us to keep nourishing freedom, to keep nourishing wisdom, to keep nourishing goodness in the world and in the lives of living beings through what we have, <laughs> yeah, this, this body, this heart, this mind, yeah, these conditions of our lives, to keep nourishing freedom and wisdom and goodness in the world and in the lives of living beings. And this is possible on so many levels, yeah. on so many levels. It's possible on the personal level, yeah, working with our own loneliness or sadness or illness, yeah, as well as that of others on a personal level. Yeah, staying steady and open, keeping our view wide, yeah, keeping our view wide. And this is also true on the social, political, global, environmental levels, yeah. On every possible level, yeah. And we're living in times where, wow, <laughs> isn't this possible, yeah to find ways to address inequality, injustice, environmental destruction. Yeah. There's no shortage of areas that are calling our attention, are calling our compassion and our wisdom. And it doesn't mean that we need to do it all. <laughs> That's not possible even for a Buddha. <laughs> we just need to feel what moves us. Yeah. And act there, yeah, act there. Again, the personal, the interpersonal, the global, the social, the political, the educational, you know, so many levels, so many arenas that are open to us. So when we look with compassion at the world, 
another aspect of wisdom that is revealed to us when we look at, with compassion at the world, at ourselves, at each other. Uh, we see the roots of suffering. We can see the roots of suffering. What leads to suffering? Yeah. We can see greed. Yeah. We can see greed. We can see it in ourselves. We can see it in our societies. Yeah. We can see it in others. We see ill will. Yeah. We see ignorance. And when we look we can, with compassion, we can see them clearly and we can feel the pain that is present when any of those states of mind and heart are present. And that increases our compassion. Yeah. Increases our compassion. And we can see that the, these roots of suffering, the greed, the will, the ignorance, they are in all of us. Yeah. They're in our own hearts as well as in others. Can seeing this strengthen our commitment to transform suffering from the roots, from the roots in ourselves and in others and in the world that we share? Seeing that it's also here and it's also there, it's in all of us, it's human. I said early on, not personal human. I was speaking to someone on the retreat about this a little bit and I, I was sharing with her that um, the Dalai Lama was asked if he experiences anger and of course he laughed and said yes. <laughs> so if the Dalai Lama experiences anger, yeah. can we see? Yeah that it's not personal. For him, it's like riding on water. It appears and then disappears, dissolves. It doesn't catch. At least that's how he described it. It's a beautiful image. And that's, I think, a wonderful image, a wonderful understanding what it means for the roots of suffering to be transformed. So compassion is a natural movement for all of us. I think there's, um, I read a piece of research, I can't remember now. I can't even remember if I read it or Nathan read it and told me about it. But anyway, they, um, there's some research about how, um, how natural compassion is for us. So very, very young babies, yeah, when they hear another baby cry, they turn towards that cry. Yeah? Very, very young babies, I don't know if weeks or months old. Yeah? And they hear the cry of another baby, they turn. So that movement to alleviate, yeah? even in a very small creature that cannot do much, <laughs> it's very much part of us, and yet it gets blocked. Yeah? gets blocked and that's part of what we see in ourselves and in the world. Yeah. We get confused um, and we um, lose that confidence, that trust, that faith that there's something we can do. Yeah. A lot of the time. 
when we remember yeah, that compassion is natural to us, but it gets blocked, that opens up a whole other realm of possibility for us. Yeah. It encourages us to bring sensitivity, to bring listening to situations. And a question that I like when I like to ask myself when I feel blocked, yeah, when I feel that my heart is closed or when I feel identified with something that is blocking compassion, um, I like to ask myself, what can compassion look like now? Yeah. What can compassion look like now? How can I bring it in? Yeah. How can I bring it in as a way of relating to this that's in front of me? And I want to I wanna share a story about this from my experience. Um, and this is... Um, And this is a story from the leprosy community that uh, we've, we've been going to um, for many years. There's a few people here who've been there with us. Um, it's a leprosy community in, in, um, in India, and uh, it's very beautiful. Nathan mentioned it, I think, yesterday. And uh, so we go there, and we spend about a month there. Some of the time, uh, three weeks of that time, we're combining meditation um, and volunteer work in the community. And we do a lot of work in the in, um, home for the, for the elderly members of the community. And so over the years there, I've, I've heard uh, many times the stories of, you know, the people are there because they, m- predominantly because they get abandoned by their families. Yeah. Uh, the families um, bring them there or... Um, they have to leave their homes because of the stigma associated with the disease. And I'd heard these stories many times. I'd never actually seen it happening until the last time we were there. Yeah. So I was walking back um, from the, we call the Wisdom Bank, the, the home for the elderly members of the, of the community, um, to uh, our accommodation. And... The, the road back passed by the, the main clinic of the community. And as I was walking by, um, I, the doctor of the community saw me and he kind of waved over for me to, to come, to come over to where, they, to where he was. And as I approached, I saw that there was a group of people there and there was the doctor and other staff from, from the community's clinic and then I could see there was an elderly woman there whose foot was being bandaged by one of the nurses. Um, and there were a few other people there, younger than her. And so I walked over and um, my friend, Dr. Paul, the doctor, who's the only one there who spoke English, was explaining to me. And I said, what's going on? And he said, oh, this, um, this lady's been brought here by her family because... Um, the ulcer, the wound on her foot has gotten really bad and they can no longer treat it at home. And I thought, oh, you know, okay, that's, that's, that's cool, you know, they're treating it. And I said to him, well, you know, how long do you think she's going to stay here? And he said, oh, they're never going to come back for her, you know. And my heart just went, just like I can see some of your faces when I said that, yeah. 
just this heartbreak. And I could really feel the, the heartbreak in me and that sense of, you know, looking at her and her innocence um, and the sense of heartbreak, yeah, and the sense of compassion, but also something quite close there. Yeah, with that came a sense of closing off to these bad people who have brought their mother here and are going to leave her. Yeah. And all the stories I'd heard from friends in the community about this happening to them. And so here's where the practice comes, right? Remember, when compassion is blocked, and compassion is blocked here, it's an opportunity to ask, what can compassion look like now? How can I bring in a way of relating and seeing that frees? Yeah. So the first thing to do is work with myself, yeah? So the body, yeah, feeling the contraction in the body and relaxing as much as I can, bringing a sense of compassion to the own, my own pain because I'm feeling pain here, and that's part of what's closing me down, yeah, and part of what I'm identifying with, yeah? So opening to compassion, first of all, bringing it towards myself, really crucial step. Yeah. And when that starts to shift, slowly opening up, you know, it was really like, I didn't close my eyes, but it was like closing my eyes. Yeah. And then slowly opening to her again, yeah. to this beautiful lady. Yeah. And then to the nurse attending to her and to the hospital staff all, most of them, leprosy patients themselves, cured, yeah? And how many times have they seen this or experienced this in their lives, yeah? And their compassion, and the doctor, you know? And slowly expanding, slowly expanding, who's still outside of my heart? And then taking in the family and starting to look at them as well. Yeah, there's a younger couple there, I don't know if son and daughter-in-law, daughter and son-in-law. Yeah. And the doctor said, and there's the granddaughter, and a young woman, 18, 19 years old. Yeah. And then I could see the sadness in their eyes. Yeah. When my own heart opened, I could see their pain too. And I could see, yeah, I could know, here's wisdom, here's understanding, that they did not create the situation, yeah, that they did not create the situation where, um, in the culture that they live in, if their mother stayed at home, their daughter couldn't get married, yeah, because of the stigma of the disease. Yeah. So seeing the larger picture, yeah, seeing the larger picture. So it allowed me, this whole process then allowed me to connect with her, with her family in a different way, with everyone there. Yeah. Which then also meant, yeah, like reducing the barriers inside. Remember ignorance, the roots of suffering. Ignorance, ill will, yeah, shutting down, not seeing the other, 
not remembering that the same thing exists in me, what would I do if I was in their situation? Do I actually know? If I put myself in their shoes, do I actually know? What would I choose? So seeing all of this allowed me to be there and allowed me to then support her. Yeah. In a much closer, more intimate way over the next days and weeks. Yeah. As she made that transition from living with her family to living in in this community, which was hard. And I'm telling all of this because I feel like this process is really important for us to remember. And it doesn't for one minute mean that we legitimize or agree yeah, with human beings treating each other in this way or other living beings. It doesn't mean that we say it's okay. But we remember this is human and it's not personal. How would I act? And what kind of motivation does this give me to go to the roots of suffering in my own heart and to treat others in ways that reduce suffering from the root for them? So opening to the understanding of complexity, of conditionality, of mutuality supports us to act, supports us to act in ways that are more beneficial, more wholesome over the short and long term. So maybe the, the last thing to say from this story is when we open to compassion, yeah, and often we need to begin with compassion towards ourselves, when we open to compassion, to a compassionate way of relating, then compassion becomes a resource for us. Yeah, it becomes a resource, it empowers, yeah, it becomes a fuel for our practice and a fuel for our actions in the world. And not to forget when we see with compassion, when we see with metta, that includes ourselves. Yeah, includes ourselves. Often the block is because we forget that. We forget that. So compassion and wisdom threaded together. Yeah, releasing contraction, releasing that prison of the narrowness of self-identity and a self-centered view. It's not just about me, it's about all of us, always. So in this retreat, we've had insights, (laughs) yeah probably many more than we remember yeah. right now. We've had insights, we've seen things, we've touched things, we've tasted, we've experienced. And these insights matter. Yeah. They matter to all of us. And these insights are not just something to put on our shelf to look at once in a while. <laughs> these insights are something to be lived. Yeah. They are to be lived. As we transition from retreat to the rest of our lives, which is an ongoing retreat and exploration, as we transition, can we remember we've had insights and insights are to be lived? 
can we remember to look, as people said today, you know, with curiosity, with interest at our experience? Yeah, can we remember to look with compassion, with metta, with joy, with equanimity? Can we remember that contraction can be related to in wholesome ways, whether it's in ourselves or in others? Can we look for, be sensitive to opportunities to bring our insights alive, to implement them, to act on them, so that we transform suffering from its roots in ourselves, in others, and in the world that we share. Transform suffering from the roots. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.